a, just a one-off sermon as I come to preach this morning. We're going to look at a message called a groundbreaking challenge. The, if you've not read through the passage that we're looking at this morning, uh, it'll become apparently clear to you where that uh, theme comes from. By way of introduction, I want to say that what we, we are, what we do, uh, the church today is the result of what she's been doing in the past. Whatever the church does today will determine what she is in the future. I was provoked uh, by these words when I first heard them spoken by an American preacher who came to our Bible college when I was a student. He came um, to challenge my generation of church leaders to be all that they could be for God. Even if that meant being different from what the churches expected of us, or was altogether different from the generation of leaders who had gone before us. This being the final Sunday of 2007, and next year marking our 200th anniversary, um, I thought, uh, along with Peter, that it would be a good opportunity for us just to reflect as individuals and as a congregation where we've come from, where we are now, and where we are going in the future. And some people say, well, we don't know where we're going in the future. Uh, can I disagree just very mildly with you and, and help you to understand why I think that we can determine, even this morning, something of what our future will look like. We're going to read together a prophecy given, by, uh, given to God's ancient people Israel in the northern part of the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. Uh, the, the years are 753 through to 715 BC, and the prophet is Hosea. Now, the passage contains uh, an unfavorable appraisal, uh, not unusual at all for the Old Testament prophets, uh, some warnings of impending judgment. But as is nearly always the case, God extends a lifeline. And among all the other things that we hear this morning, I, I want you to hear that lifeline. I want you to see that lifeline. I want you to, to reach out to that extended lifeline that comes down to us through the years of prophecy in God's words. It's a real offer of salvation and hope for the people of God. So um, by the end of this sermon, that's what I want you to have, a real sense of God's salvation, His purposes for you, and to leave here this morning with a real sense of hope for our future. So let's read together from Hosea 10. Uh, Hosea 10, and we'll read verses 1 to 12. Now it's going to be... Um, a bit mischievous this morning and not tell you where the page number was, but that would just be cruel. It's number 906. It's 906 in the Pew Bible. So let's read this word together. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Then they will say, we have no king because we did not revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They make many promises, take false oaths, and make agreements. Therefore, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. The people who live in Samaria fear, 
for the calf idol of Beth Avin. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests. Those who had rejected or had rejoiced over its splendor because it is taken from them into exile. It will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its wooden idols. Samaria and its king will float away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Since the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel, and there you have remained. Did not war overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their double sin. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. So I will put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim. Judah must plow and Jacob must break up the ground. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Amen. This is the word of God. I want to look um, at this passage in the context of the past, the present, and the future. And as we do that, uh, in terms of the challenges that it presents, I, I, I want you to think about the challenge to your nation. Uh, whether you uh, consider yourself Scottish or uh, a, a member of the United Kingdom or whether you're European or whether you're from another part of the world or maybe listening to this or after the sermon's preached on one of the downloads from the, the website. I want you to think of your nation and the challenges that it faces. I want you to think of your church, whether you belong to Charlotte Chapel or not. Think of your own particular fellowship and thirdly of your personal walk with God which actually, as we'll discover, is the most important aspect of the focus as we think about the context of what God is saying to his people. So first of all, let's look at the past in the context of what God is saying to the northern part of the kingdom, Israel. They have known God's loving provision. In the past, God chose Israel to be his own special people, set apart from the other nations, to be a holy community. From their slavery in Egypt, God had delivered his people and set them up eventually in the land that he had promised originally to their ancestral fathers. And in the more recent past in its history, these people have enjoyed full possession of that promised land uh, given to them under the united kingship of great and godly rulers like David and Solomon. They've had a succession of good and bad kings and always when there was a bad king leading the people, God has prospered and blessed the land and when there's been a bad king, the result uh, of disobedience has resulted in some form of judgment, whether it be an invading army or a famine or something else going on politically. uh, God has has judged his people to get them to come back to that place of repentance. Uh, Something for us to be reminded of even in our day and generation in the day of the church and the day of grace is that repentance is always God's gift to us. We should never presume on it. When God gives us the opportunity to repent of something we've done wrong, it is a gift from God, a gift to be received, a gift to be acknowledged, a gift to be responded in whenever he asks us to come and to repent of some wickedness. 
the, the temple in Jerusalem was intended uh, as the dwelling place of Yahweh's presence. And the book of the law, the Torah, contained all the principles, the decrees, the statutes that God had commanded his people to observe and to live by. The priesthood that had been established during the wilderness wandering years uh, was there, continued in the, in the temple to oversee and to conduct the worship within Israel, including animal sacrifice, thus ensuring and maintaining a day-to-day relationship between God and his people. God had promised that obedience would result in blessing and that prosperity, including the provision of food enough to feed everyone in the land and those that they welcomed the strangers would be theirs. Obedience would also ensure God's protection against any hostile activity from the surrounding nations. So all in all, this nation was greatly blessed and provided for. During the reign of Jeroboam II, the northern kingdom of Israel began to really prosper economically and politically in the region. On the surface and to the spiritually undiscerning eye, this would have been seen as good progress. After all, most people like a success story. Whether you're a self-made man or a self-made woman, or whether you're part of a self-made nation, you're guaranteed to receive the plaudits of sun. Some may even interpret the opening comments of Hosea 10 as positive. There will be a misinterpretation when God says, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. Such a sting of condemnation and criticism by the Holy One of Israel as he speaks through his prophet. What some see as progress and security, God very often views quite differently. Which takes us to to focus just for a moment on Israel's lustful perversion. You see, the more that Israel prospered, the less that she was concerned to honor God and to give him the glory. Does some of this begin to sound true for our nation? For our church? For you as an individual? Note some of the perverted activity and behavior. Idol worship. That's the introduction. It was introduced during the reign of Jeroboam I that no longer content just to worship God. Well, let's bring in a little bit of other stuff. A little bit of stuff that, that involves just, we can add it to our, our experience of God. You know, we get sometimes Christians who feel that they can do that. That it's okay to worship God, but it's okay to, to do a little bit of stargazing or a little bit of taro or a little bit of Ouija or just maybe the worship of possession. Maybe the worship of career. Maybe the worship of family can interfere with true worship of God. Second thing that I notice in Israel's history is is that she's uh, pluralistic. Pluralism. Uh, By that I mean just incorporating other beliefs and religious practices. There is tolerism there. The accepting and the approving of things abhorrent to God. We're encouraged to live in a politically correct environment these days. We're encouraged as a society to be tolerant of absolutely everything. Not judging anyone by our standards or by any standards that we might think is is, um, true to God's words. They're also making false promises and oaths. People's word couldn't be trusted. There are lawsuits going on. 
litigation of all sorts, misguided concern and loyalty towards the Ford's guards. Um, as we continue looking at these things in Israel's past of God's loving provision for her and her lustful perversion, note the comment in the NIV margin regarding the meaning of the place that's identified as Beth Avin. It means the house of wickedness. Now compare that with the contrast of how God intended it to be viewed. His name was Bethel, or the house of God. God wanted this place called the house of God, and yet because of the way that she was behaving, it was referred to as the house of wickedness. Do you recall uh, Jesus' concern when he furiously ransacked the outer courts of the temple in Jerusalem? Uh, on two different occasions, at the beginning of his public ministry and again at the end. At the end of that public ministry in Matthew 21 and 13, he says, it is written, he said to them, uh, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So as we think about Israel's past, what's the challenge to your nation, to your church, and to your personal walk? Has God been good to you, provided for you in many ways? Have you turned God's goodness into something that's become lustfully perverted? Secondly, I want to look at the present. First thing I note about this, people, is there is a feel-good factor. There's a lot of personal satisfaction and contentment in the experience of these people. They have uh, more than a little disposable income. They have a sort of pick-and-mix experience when it comes to religion. Sexual pleasure and gratification is readily available. And in the main, life is good. Like the trained heifer in verse 11, who is able to eat all that she wants while threshing, these people indulge themselves in self-satisfaction and pleasure as they merely go about their day-to-day work and generally take life easy. Rather than engage in activity and toil, that will ensure future prosperity. This generation is living off the past, squandering the resources providing for by times long gone. As I thought about that this week, you know, I wonder if that principle is currently at work in our day and generation. I'm certainly not qualified to commentate on this at a political or a socio-economic level. But I think that we can trace the reality of this in our spiritual heritage. Consider where our spiritual roots and heritage comes from. In Scotland, in the United Kingdom, we're known as the land of the book, referring sadly to a bygone era when the Word of God was held in very high esteem. Not just in the churches, but in our law courts, in our places of academia, in house to house, from city to city, town to town, known as a land of the book. We have known in the past times of great revival, times of reformation in the church and in society. You walk up onto the mound there and you go into the the precincts, the courts of New College, and see the statue of John Knox, Where are the people like that today? Will we ever have them again? We're living on a very rich spiritual heritage. Within our society, we have produced 
many world-influencing individuals and initiatives. And you know something? It felt good. For some of us that still have a vestige of national pride, it still feels good. But it was yesterday. It was yesteryear. And we're kind of living in the wake of that. See, my concern is this. Are we now living on the back of that experience rather than being swept along on a tide of current spiritual awakening and revival? Are we resting on our laurels rather than engaging in some innovative thistle and weed-destroying activities? Have we become like Israel, the luxuriant vine that produces its own fruit only to indulge our prosperity on our own spiritually lustful pleasures? A feel-good factor, but at the same time here in Israel, there is a fail-God factor. Hosea was commanded by God to marry an unfaithful wife, an experience which God in turn would use to illustrate Israel's unfaithfulness to him. If you want a good read this afternoon, uh, chapters 1 through 3 deal with the story of Hosea's wayward wife, while the remainder of the prophecies in chapters 4 through 14 deal with the story of God's wayward people. In verse 9 of chapter 10, God challenges Israel regarding the source and the persistent failure in her sinfulness. He says to them, Since the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel, and there you have remained. Now, for a full explanation of, of what appears to me to be an inherent trait in the fabric of society, you're going to need to read way back in Judges 19 and 20. Suffice for this morning's sermon to say that Gibeah stands for cruelty, for sensuality, and for rebellion. However good we may feel inwardly or appear outwardly, let us be reminded that God sees things as they really are. And that applies equally to nations, churches, and individuals. Now, there appears to be this inherent sinful trait common among these people of God that has never been rooted out and destroyed. Therefore, it passes from one generation to the next, randomly surfacing at various junctures in the history of the nation. Um, little insight into my clan. We have a practice in our family of blaming all our bad traits on my mother's side of the family. While all the good stuff we appropriate to our dad's lineage. Now, the truth is, of course, that all nine of my siblings and myself have a proportionate share of genes and personality quirks from both sets of grandparents. Maybe you've heard people excuse their shortcomings and even their sinful behavior on the grounds that it is a family trait. Oh, I'm just like my mother or I'm just like my father, etc. Now, that may well be the truth. But if you're a Christian believer this morning, I want to encourage you that there is an overriding principle true in your life if you really do know Jesus as Savior and Lord. If you have repented of and renounced all sins, including that of your own wickedness and the things passed on to you by our sinful forebears, then you have a new bloodline through Jesus Christ with the divine right to be called the children of God. 
You have God's Holy Spirit living within you. You have the capacity every time you open your mouth to sound like Jesus. Every time you engage in some form of activity to behave like Jesus. Every time God asks you to do something to obey like Jesus. It's amazing. So why do we behave and sound so much like our earthly families? What are you doing in the present? What's the challenge for your nation, for your church, for your personal walk? And that brings us to the future. And I'm going to ask this question of me personally, of you personally, of us collectively as a fellowship, and maybe further out into the scope of our society. Will we in the future produce a harvest of self-effort or the fruit of divine righteousness? Because that's what's on offer here to the people of Israel in Hosea's day. Look at, chapter, uh, look at verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. As we sang that song, not terribly well known to some of you, before the, the sermon, I could feel my spirit starting to engage with that and saying, How long? How long, O oh God? How long will we have to put up with what we're experiencing now rather than what we could have? How long? How long will unborn children never see the light of day because we sacrifice them on the, the sacrificial altars of Baal still? How long? How long will we have to be tolerant of the evil things that God looks at and says is abhorrent? How long? I see three agricultural laws found in Hosea that I want to uh, consider with you. And I think they're just as applicable to the Christian life as they are to agriculture. The first one is plowing. The first law is that plowing prepares the ground. This first law uh, centuries ago, one of Job's friends, Job is the oldest book of the Bible, and one of his friends observed in Job 4, the first part of verse 8, I, I, as I have observed, those who plow evil, and, and we'll look at the other part of it in a moment, those who uh, sow trouble reap it. I want to read to you a little poem. I, I really can't remember where I picked this poem up from. I suspect it was during the days when I did some prison ministry when I was in college. I, all I know is it's, it's written by an unknown drug addict lost in the dream world of heroin addiction. And he writes the following. King heroin is my shepherd, I shall always want. He makes me to lie down in the gutters. He leadeth me beside the troubled waters. He destroyeth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of wickedness for the effort's sake. Yea, I shall walk through the valley of poverty I will fear all evil, for thou, heroine, art with me. Thy needle and capsule try to comfort me. Thou strippest the table of groceries in the presence of my family. Thou robbest my head of reason. My cup of sorrow runneth over. Surely heroin addiction shall stalk me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the damned forever. You plough it up. You plough up evil. You reap it. 
Maybe not as in the extreme way that that poor heroin addict felt. But whatever it is that we turn over and make ready for the seed, if that ground's not good ground, then it will start to produce whatever's lying inherently in there. In the days prior to the availability of strong weed killers, uh, all weeds had to be pulled up and destroyed. I remember one time on the farm, my father had decided he was going to break out a piece of unplowed ground, fallow ground, land that hadn't been cultivated for many, many decades. But before he put the tractor and the plow to the land, he sent out three of his sons with, with little hoes and, and knives. And our task was, in a probably like a 25-acre field, was to dig up every thistle one by one by one had to be done. You see, if he just ploughed them over, all the seeds that were in the growing thistles would have been ploughed back into the ground and the harvest of weeds would have been greater than the harvest of the crop that he planned to put in it. That's what Israel is being told. Plough up your unprofitable, your unfruitful ground. But before they would do that, they would have to pull the weeds out. The people of Hosea's day had left their spiritual land to return to its natural, uncultivated state. Before they would break it up, they would have to turn it over, but remove the weeds prior to reseeding it with good seed. It takes us to the second law, the principle of sowing. You reap what you sow. Back to that verse in Job 4, verse 8. As I observe, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. The fruit of our actions won't always come quickly, but all things being equal, the produce will come eventually. And you know what it is? It's whatever you plant that grows. If you put carrot seeds in the ground, you don't get apples from them. You might not get carrots, but you certainly won't get any other kind of thing. I know I'm in trouble with this little illustration, but I'm going to give it anyway. I I read uh, some years ago... uh, some stuff that a dermatologist, a guy from the United States called Michael Kalman, had written. These are his words, not mine. I'm not getting at anybody here this morning, okay? Today's deeply tanned beauties are tomorrow's wrinkled prunes. I used that illustration once in a sermon. This lady came to me afterwards. Couldn't remember anything other than that bit. And I said a whole lot of other good stuff. But that was the bit that she focused on. But you know, as I read that warning, I thought about sin. Sin is kind of like getting a tan. It may look great today. But if we heed the dermatologist's warning tomorrow, could be a different story. Galatians 6 and 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Romans 6 and 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How have you been plowing? What have you been sowing? What will you be reaping? It's the third law. The more we reap, so we reap more than we plant. It's graphically stated by Hosea in Hosea 8 verses 7. They sow the wind, but note the contrast, and reap the whirlwind. When we shrug off God's counsel and go our own way, in due time the consequences 
of our choice will swirl around us, threatening to blow us down. We all know too well the illustration from King David's life. David went out one night in the cool of the evening and he sees Bathsheba bathing across the way on the open top of her roof. He should have gone inside and tried to forget what he saw. But maybe he got the little stepladder and the binoculars and he went back again and his heart began to lust. And eventually he invites this woman to come to his house. He commits adultery with her. Adultery that then led to the murder of her husband Uriah. The consequences of that, David had to bear when confronted with the prophet Nathan and said, God is against you. Even though you're his, his king, even though you're his appointed, anointed leader, God's against you in this, David. And the child that Bathsheba bears will die. And David knew the pain and the sorrow and the consequences of what is a kingdom principle. You reap what you sow. Second Corinthians 9 verse 6 says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. See, this is not all just negative stuff, because that principle of multiplication, of, of growth, if you put good stuff in, then you get abundantly back more good stuff than the quantity of good stuff you put in. And that's the challenge and the hope that we have today as we come to think about our future as individuals in this church. If it's true what that American preacher said some 17 years ago, that the church is today the result of what she's been doing, then how can we be different in the future, but we've got to adjust in the present what we do now in order to maintain a prosperous and generous future. But beware, that principle of multiplication applies equally to good and bad seeds. I began by saying that the church is today the result of what she's been doing in the past. In other words, the inference is that we are now reaping the harvest of our previous plowing and sowing. What is to really take stock of that this morning? Some of us have lived through the generation that has seen the church least productive in terms of people getting saved for the last hundred years. And maybe we're sitting smugly in church today and saying, it's the world's fault. It's the unsaved's responsibility to get saved. As, as gently, but as authoritatively as I can, I want to tell you it's not the world's fault. It's our fault. The church is fault. The church has been placed in Scotland for the healing of the nations. And some of us are church leaders at a time when the church has never been more weary, never been more apathetic, never been less productive. Whose fault is that, guys and women? It's ours. It's ours. And we need men and women who will embrace that concept that somehow we have to take responsibility and own up to the fact that, that while we've done church well, we've not done impact into the community well because we've been too self-focused 
It's been much more about us and what we like and what we need. Like Israel, producing fruit for itself. It's not the fruit of righteousness that God would bestow on us. There's a fourth law that's not mentioned in Hosea, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. It's a fourth law in agriculture. And it's called the law of diversifying. The fourth law, even though yesterday's actions are irreversible, tomorrow's are not. We can dramatically affect our future by the decisions that we make today. Those of you who are from an agricultural background will appreciate that farming practice has changed big time in our country in recent years. The way that my father used to farm is no longer economic or viable. The experts in agriculture are encouraging farmers to diversify everything from trees to tourists, from organics to ostriches. Now, as we're about to enter a new year, And the next chapter of Revival in Rose Street. I I thought about bringing Ian Balfour's excellent book into the pulpit and saying, this is the last 200 years. And and having a similarly sized book then, completely blank and saying, what are we going to put in this one? Because the next chapter after Ian's book has already begun to be written. If as a church what we're doing produces what we see, as the produce of our labors. And it seems to be ineffective. It seems to be... I mean, I I don't know. I I, I did think maybe what I should do is figure out how many people got saved, became believers in this last year through the the various ministries of Charlotte Chapel. Help me out here. Do you reckon that it's going to be more than 20? Anybody? Somewhere around there, maybe? Spoken evangelism? Do you think we saw 20 people saved? out of a congregation of a thousand? Anybody do the math there quickly? Does that, I mean, it's great when people get saved, isn't it? But how about a congregation of a thousand? How many people should we expect to get saved? Well, 20 next year would be good as well. Well, it would. But it's hardly revival, is it? How about hoping for the future? I'm hoping for a much richer, much more prosperous, a much more fruitful future. What would that take in terms of what, as an individual, I need to plow up as unfruitful ground in my life, as a church that we would need to plow up as unfruitful ground in our, as a nation? Where are we going to go with this stuff? If we personalize the words of Hosea 10 and 12 and say, So for yourself righteousness, Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers you with righteousness. What is the challenge to you? Well, in conclusion, let's stick with us back to the future theme. We sometimes sing that Matt Redman song, Can a nation be changed? The words continue, Can a nation be saved? Can a nation be turned back to you? And the refrain says, We're on our knees. We're on our knees again. Let this nation be changed. Let this nation be saved. Let this nation be turned back to you. Our nation is constantly changing, and not for the better spiritually. 
Can we halt the downward spiral? I believe we can. But not by continuing to do what we do. It's time to break up the unfruitful parts of our individual and collective ministries and to seek the Lord until He showers righteousness upon us. The next chapter is already being written. May it be a prosperous and fruitful revelation. Let's pray.